This show is a part of the FM Podcast Network. Visit us at fmpods.com. When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. Well, they'll stone you when you're trying to be so good. They'll stone you just like they said they would. They'll stone you when you're trying to go home. Then they'll stone you when you're there all alone. But I would not feel so all alone. Everybody must get stoned. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time, part of the FM Podcast Network. I'm your host of Freewheeling, Rob Kelly. And joining us this week to talk about Rainy Day Women, number 12 and 35, is fellow Bobcat, Jeff Pass. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Rob. It's really great to be on this show. I just love it. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. It's 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 really fun to be uh, engaging, even if I'm not personally engaging, listening to the ideas being expressed with people who are so exuberant and fanatical as you and your fellow guests. And <laughs> I'm happy to include myself in your group. <laughs> fanatical yeah i appreciate that yeah we're here to talk about i mean really one of the giant songs of bob's canon rainy day women over 12 and 35 it's kind of amazing that 300 shows in we haven't gotten around to it yet and once in a while someone's asked about it but generally we just it's not it doesn't show up on a lot of people's lists so uh, i'm fascinated to find out about why you wanted to talk about this one obviously the song has a rich history but since you haven't been on the show before we have to start uh where we traditionally do for new guests which is how'd you become a fan in the first place well i was uh i think my clock radio went off one morning when i was getting ready for high school back in the 60s and this song came on. Like, I think God uh, sent a message, Jeff, listen to this song. <laughs> and I, I heard like a Rolling Stone. And I thought, wow, this is fantastic. And I went out that afternoon to EJ Corbett's and I bought the Greatest Hits album because that's what you bought when you were being introduced to an artist. Nowadays, you would just stream their catalog. But I went and got the Greatest Hits album with the Peter Max poster and put it on my tinny turntable and uh, this song came on and I had never heard anything like this. It was the most outrageous song I'd ever heard. So that was my introduction and within the next few weeks I bought that Highway 61 and Blonde on Blonde and bringing it all back home and started working my way through uh, all of the previous albums. Now what is what was the name of the store you mentioned? Uh, E.J. Corvettes. It was a, a department store in New York City. Oh, okay. I'm I'm completely unfamiliar with that. Was that I guess was that a a New York yeah, chain yeah, specifically? I think there were about there were like four or five of them around the city. Yeah. Oh wow. Was, okay. Yeah. Oh wow. All right. Yeah. No longer heard of it. Yeah. I, no. Right. I I figure as much. Okay. So well. So all right. You heard it on the radio, and you just went and got as record companies continue to do you went and got the greatest hits record uh and you just went all in yeah i and i mean we could do a whole show just on the greatest hits album because it's an extraordinary collection of songs uh that very first one uh but we're here to talk about uh rainy day women and that's also on a remarkable album because blonde on blonde was the very first rock double album it was the very first album where you had a cover with no words on it and not only was it just a picture of Bob, but it was a blurry picture of him. Uh, so we, 
And then there's the title, Blonde on Blonde, which nobody really knows what it means. But then nobody really knows what the title of uh, Rainy Day Women number 12 and 35 means. Although, right, uh, yeah, exactly. We have some ideas. What, around what time was this? Uh, what, what was Bob's newest album when you were getting into him at the time? I think the most recent album was Nashville Skyline. And shortly after I started listening, Self Portrait came out. Wow. Okay. So you really, you, you were hitting him at a very interesting juncture in his career. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I became this huge fan and I had to wait five years to see him live. Because so, he wasn't okay. Touring. Well, that leads to my next question. So you saw him on the 74 tour? I saw him with the band. Yeah. In Nassau Coliseum. What was yeah, that like? It was a religious experience. <laughs> uh, I I was just blown away to hear all of those songs being performed by not only by Bob, but by the band, whom I really love. And to see them together on stage, just remarkable. And that started me off. It's uh, I've seen them, I think. I, I tried to count in preparation for this. I think somewhere in the 30s, maybe 40s, 40 different times. That's amazing. That's That's amazing. You were able to see that historic um run of concerts you know i mean the 74 tour is just un- unbelievable what can you know can people nowadays appreciate how hard it was to get tickets for concerts back then back in the day you actually right. had to stand in line and wait and get them as opposed to just sitting in the comfort of your home clicking the refresh button on Ticketmaster. right especially something as exciting as that uh, because everybody wanted to go right how, how close to the stage were you that first one I was behind the stage. I think if I was in front of the stage, it would have been too much. I would have keeled over. With excitement. <laughs> but that was wow, really that's... cool, though, because I could see uh, Levon and, and Rick and, uh, and Richard, you know, from behind. I could see Garth playing his organ, which people in the front of the stage couldn't see. So I had mm. an interesting perspective. That's really cool. When was the last time you saw him? Um, last year. He did three shows in the state of Washington, where I live now. So I saw one show in uh, Eastern Washington and two shows in Seattle at the Paramount. And how did you enjoy those? Oh, my gosh. It was so wonderful. Uh, That band is so tight. And those songs are so great. Rough and Rowdy Ways. Man, one song after another is just uh, not only great on the record, but he's uh, continued to improve them in performance. Uh, Yeah, that's uh, that was something special. No, okay. So you've been with Bob a, a long time now. I mean, you're talking fifty, a little over fifty years. Was there ever a point where you fell out of it a little, or have you kind of? No. Oh, wow, you stuck with him the whole time. <laughs> even uh, even the 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 '80s albums. Uh, <laughs> um, this this is always you know. There's always a nugget there, uh, and you've had, you've had the shows uh, on with some of those records, and every mm-hmm. once in a while, there's a great song or two, and. That's all I need is one or two songs on a the record. They don't all have to be great. <laughs> That's a very positive attitude to have about it. <laughs> well, I agree as well. You know, I'm like, okay. That's, that's fantastic. Oh, that's really cool. All right. So, well, yeah, Rainy Day Women, number 12 and 35. Uh, most people that don't know Bob Dylan at all know it as the Everybody Must Get Stone song. Because obviously, what the hell does Rainy Day Women? You know, what? nobody knows what that that title means so why did you want to talk about this uh again his his uh along with like rolling stone his biggest hit as a single they reached mm-hmm. number two on the billboard yeah. charts which uh so he has never had a bigger hit than this and rolling stone both hit number two but so yeah this is a huge song in his canon 
Yeah, I think as as we discussed, there's so many aspects aspects of it that point out how special and amazing uh, Bob is. Whether it's the uh, the recording of it and the, the lyrics of it and how the song evolved over the years, pretty profound. And it certainly had a profound effect on me because I think uh, it was what uh, after listening to the Beatles doing. Uh, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, then hearing this song, uh, I was ready to get stoned. I was calling my friends and saying, I, I want to I want to try some of this marijuana stuff. Is <laughs> that Bob's intention? I don't know. Sure it wasn't. Uh, I, I don't think the song itself was intended to be about drugs. Uh, but I think that's what the studio musicians heard and wanted to play around with. Uh, because if you read the lyrics as you did earlier, you know, it's it's not about drugs at all. It's definitely about the metaphorical or physical stoning of people, you know, as uh, commanded by the Bible. The the band, uh, by the way, it's a fun it's a fun way to open the record, considering the rest of the album. Actually, you know, as you pointed out, a double album really doesn't fit this tonally like the opening track is feels like a giant party and you've got again you've got that salvation army sound to it the rest of the record really doesn't have that which no. is interesting um and it was gotten down in one take which is amazing when you think of how ramshackle it sounds and yet yeah. apparently they got it basically just in, in one take there's the on the cutting edge set they put out the the extended version you can hear uh bob talking to uh, Bob Johnson uh, talking about the the song and like what it, he originally uh, was going to be calling it and stuff like that. But it's really and then just kind of dicking around a little and then it kicks in and you realize, oh, that's that's the one we know. That's the song. You know, that's the that's the take that we know. So it's kind of amazing for something that sounds so thrown together. Uh, they got it down in that one shot and then they never they never had to go back to it. And that's just so indicative of Dylan that he could have recorded this any number of ways and it would still be a great song. Uh, it just so happened that this is the one that they put on the record. And it's, it's out, as you said, it's outrageous. It's the first Dylan song with horns. I guess it is. You're right. Yeah, I didn't think about that. You're right. So, you know, people were all upset. All oh, the folky went electric. Well, now he's doing, uh, like, well, like you said, the Salvation Army sound. He's got trombones and trumpets going on and people laughing out loud uh, <laughs> while they're playing it. Uh, it's an outrageous song. And uh, as a, as a listener, especially a teenager listening to this said, I said, wow, I, I'd like to be part of this. I'd like to, I'd love to be in the studio with him while this is going on. Oh yeah. It sounds like a sound. They're having a blast. You know, yeah. you hear the guys in the back, you know, oh! like they're yelling and stuff like that. And Bob's laughing at one point, which is, you know, always fun to hear, to hear him kind of get into it and having, having a good time. By the way, the original, as he mentions to, uh, to Bob Johnson, he says the tub, cause Johnson says, what's the name of the song? And Bob says, a long haired mule and a porcupine here. And that's the, <laughs> that's supposedly the name of the song. So, okay. Now, of course, you know, over the decades, people have inquired what the hell does Rainy Day Women 12 and 35 mean? There is a reference to Rainy Women. In the Bible, there's nothing about the 12 and 35. People have since pointed out that if you multiply 12 and 35, you get 420. Uh, but the apparently the, the the 420 thing came along much later in the culture. Like it came along in the 70s. 
And so uh, some people, if they want to, could give Bob credit for that. But it's, I wasn't that interested in looking up marijuana culture, to be honest with you. But what I saw of it is that there really doesn't seem to be any definable point to where it got started. And so uh, I think it might be that it's just a coincidence that uh, that this adds up yeah. to the, the, the number, the numerology that, that uh, has been used ever since. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, I think uh, very few people know what the 12 and 35 stand for, you know, it, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, this right. was a period where Dylan was hanging out in the Greenwich Village art scene and all of these artists and poets uh, were giving these strange titles to their works. Calder, the great, uh, great sculpture artist, uh, he would just pull these names almost, it seems like randomly just to, to his, his work. So I could see Bob being influenced by that. And probably the producer said, what should we call this? And he comes up with these crazy names. <laughs> but, I, but he was walking around carrying a Bible uh, during, those during the Blonde on Blonde sessions. And there's a, a quote from the Talmud is, a continual dripping on a very rainy day and a contentious woman are, are, are alike. There you go. That's the, yeah, that's the, that's the quote I was thinking of. So so do you... It, is there anything there in your mind that you can find here? No, no, I, I can't. And uh, it could mean anything. And that's that's the fun of it. Bob Bob loves uh, ambiguity. And anytime he could throw out a title like that, uh, it's fun for him. But I don't think he really cared that much what it was called. Probably not. Like I said, I think he was just like throwing it out there. And, you know, people are digging into every single thing that he's saying at the time. And he's probably just having a laugh at it you know like, yeah what the hell this will throw them this will throw them for a loop there's a hilarious uh reference in one of the reviews i think it was in time magazine where the writer who was like a mr jones who had no idea what was going on he said uh as every junkie knows uh mm -hmm. a rainy day woman is a marijuana cigarette uh, okay and is that a no, thing <laughs> no no of course not uh, nobody knows anything about that. Uh, who who knows where this guy might have gotten that uh, piece of information? But like any every junkie knows, meaning that uh, if you smoked marijuana, you were a junkie, and that's the way people were thinking back in this in mm -hmm. the mid sixties. We people didn't have any idea what drugs really were. Just the whole idea of uh, everybody must get stoned. To most people in the sixties, and I was one of them, getting stoned was like getting drunk. It was what something Dean Martin would do. And uh, the, there was a song previously uh, called Let's Go Get Stoned, which Joe Cocker made famous. But the uh, first version of it uh, was by Johnny Paycheck. So Dylan might have heard that. Then the next version of it was by Ray Charles. But that came out uh, after a recording of this particular version but that doesn't mean bob didn't hear it i we don't know whether bob might have gone to see ray charles perform and heard that song or somebody else might have heard it and uh imp was impressed by it it's it's one of the few examples i can think of of bob kind of being i mean bob has been funny in his songs for the whole time it's very well i was about to say it's always very dry humor but it's not because especially lately he's been doing all the dad jokes and stuff but yeah yeah he loves uh, puns. Yeah, he sure does. Uh, but this song is, it's unique in that it's like he's nudging you in the, you know, he's kind of nudging you in the ribs a little because it's like, okay, we all know the refrain here. But 
if you listen, as you were talking about earlier, if you listen to it, he is talking about something else. I mean, yeah. he says he, well, the second verse is they'll stone you when you're trying to when you're walking along the street. They'll stone you when you're trying to keep your seat, which feels very much like Rosa Parks not giving up her seat on the bus. It feels like it's that's a line in another context. That's a line out of one of his protest songs. But yeah. here he's singing it along with everybody. And so he knows that he knows that he's burying the message of the song under the refrain because everyone's going to know the refrain, but that's, that's the kind of humor of it. He's just kind of, and he just generally, he didn't do that, be that kind of obvious about it. But I think that's kind of the, the, he's just having a laugh uh, and throwing kind of throwing you off purposely. Yep. Which he delights in doing. Uh, But then, you know, it's kind of serious when he says they'll stone you when you're playing your guitar, Mm -hmm. which, you know, he was playing an electric guitar at Newport and he got booed. And that would explain how he could lump himself in, you know, with all the people who have been unfairly attacked uh, by having stones thrown at them. Yeah, he had to certainly he had to feel that way uh, yeah. at this point of all the all the brickbats getting getting thrown at him. He said they'll stone you when you're at the breakfast table. They'll stone you when you were young and able. They'll stone you when you're trying to make a buck. They'll stone you and then they'll say good luck. I'll tell you what, I would not feel so all alone. Everybody must get stoned. And I like that the the band behind him is kind of revving him up a little. Yeah. There's one point where he, one, one guy, I, again, I don't know which which of the musicians uh, is, is back. By the way, the musicians are Charlie McCoy on the trumpet, Wayne Moss on the electric bass, Henry Strzelecki on organ, Hargis Pig Robbins, great name on piano, and Al, Al Cooper, of course, and Kenny Buttry on drums, and then Wayne Butler on uh, trombone. But I like that they're kind of revving him up a little uh, as he's getting more and more into it. Again, it's a it's a genuinely fun performance. Yeah, like that, that big, ah Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Robbie Robertson was part of those sessions, but the report is that he went out for a pack of cigarettes and they recorded the song in the time he was gone. <laughs> Imagine that. Imagine missing a piece of musical history because you went to get a, get a pack of cigarettes. You know, like, oh, while you were gone, we recorded this. And you're like, well, all right. And then it becomes this thing, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, R- Robbie made up for it in a few ways. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he did. A okay. number of other songs, yeah. Um, there's the in the the next the last verse which says they'll stone you and then they'll say that it's the end. They'll stone you and then they'll come back again. They'll stone you when you're riding in your car. At one point, you hear somebody really laugh at that, and I also wondered if that is a private joke between Bob and somebody else that had that experience. It might just be somebody just laughing, but sometimes I I think when I hear it, I think is that is that a reference that Bob is making to the to somebody and they're really laughing and then they'll stone you when you're playing your guitar, but it would not feel so all alone. Everybody must get some, what's in your mind? What's the, I would not feel so all alone. Like what, what does that mean? Question. Uh, My thinking and all along the way is this uh, just recognition that you're going to get stoned. People are going to throw stones at you, no matter what you do, Uh, whether you're Rosa Parks or Bob Dylan or St. Stephen, which was, uh, you know, someone who was stoned, in the Bible, but uh, I don't know what it means. But what do you think, Rob? Uh, yeah, I think I, I sort of always took it as this. He realizes that everybody, this guy who was singing, he realizes everybody catches hell for something mm-hmm. that they do at some point. And so you, you feel less alone knowing the Bob talks about in many of his songs, the system, the they uh, is always, 
looking to come down, rain down upon you if you step out of line. And so he doesn't feel so all alone because all these different things that people do, they play their guitar, they're at the breakfast table, you know, they're riding in a car, any, any of these very mundane things, by the way, you're making a buck, you know, there, there's nothing even terribly interesting going on for the people they are walking down the street. It's, it's just stuff that you would do in your normal daily life. Everybody catches hell for something uh, by the society. And so he feels less alone knowing that everybody goes through that. So that's always how I, I took it. I mean, at the end, he says, they'll stone you when you walk all alone. They'll stone you when you were walking home. They'll, st- by the way, walk all alone walking home. It's just the same line twice. They'll stone <laughs> you and then they'll say you are brave. They'll stone you when you are set down in your grave. Yeah. But you I would not feel it. so all alone. Yeah. You can't, even, even after you're buried, you still can't escape it. Now, I wouldn't say this about many of his songs. In fact, maybe not any of his songs, but this one seems like it was being made up in the studio. Like they had the basic idea and he was just coming up with rhyming schemes. I thought of that because I remember listening to him with Johnny Cash when they were doing Wanted Man and they were making up rhymes all the way along and Bob was great at it. So I was thinking, I'm thinking that maybe, you know, it was a half formed song and then they just started having fun with it and he started shouting out lyrics. That would, that would make sense. I mean, except Bob was, as you said, Bob was good at that and he knows at the end of every line, he's got to rhyme it with stone. So he's got a place to go. In any given verse, you know, you know, you can just kind of like, and as you know, as you you can hear from the lyrics, they they are very simple. You know, it's Buck and Luck, Table and Abel. I mean, the just a couple of songs in uh, further down in the record, we've got Visions of Johanna, you know, which is like a whole other thing. Uh, yeah, but this yeah. is this is kind of very very basic on purpose. It is was, and again, it, it has that Salvation Army sound, the kind of basic, bum, 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 kind of simple kind of progression. Uh, you know, as a, as it were, I remembered it's so fun. It, it's funny for a song that it gets so ramshackle. The tune is incredibly distinctive. I remember it in the nineties. I was walking in a mall, and yeah. I heard it played over the mall uh, speakers as Muzak. And wow. you hear it, you hear it for about five seconds, and you immediately recognize the song. And then the other thought I had in the moment was like, "Wow, that's where we are. This song is now Muzak." that's pumped into, into a mall and people are playing it. Like, that's kind of amazing. Um, I mentioned earlier, I said it was released as a single. It was the second single off of Blonde on Blonde after One of Us Must Know. It was uh, B-sided with Pledging My Time. And I said it, it and, hit and number... And the single, single was two minutes and 11 seconds. And the song right. on Blonde on Blonde is four and a half minutes. Apparently so they, they cut they the third and verses. fifth verses. Yeah. So that's pretty radical. You can't imagine Bob doing that, you know, at, at other points of his career. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, when they did, when they released uh, like Rolling Stone, they put half of it on one side and half of it on the other. But yeah. I guess they figured for that. Again, you wonder even Bob even knows about that at, at a certain point. But it was a genuine, genuine hit, and it, you know, it's been on every single one of his greatest. Well, maybe not every single one, but close to it, every single greatest hits collections that he's ever done uh, afterwards, as you mentioned, was on Greatest Hits Volume 1. And it was live... always been a staple of his live shows. Right. I, I was about to say, it's it's been played 963 <laughs> times. So it is up there. And the first is time... in like ever... the top 10? You know what? I 
there, there, there are databases out there that measure these things. I have not looked. I'm sure it's got to be in the top 10 at this point. There's only a handful of songs that are in the thousands at this point, and, and this is pretty close. The first ever live performance of it was at the Isle of Wight. And then not again until, uh, like you mentioned, the 74 tour where he pulled it out and uh, he, he debuted it in my hometown of Philadelphia at the Spectrum. So a bunch of shows there. And he pulled it out and completely rearranged it. And it just said, find out what you think. I actually like that arrangement more than the one on Blonde on Blonde. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it became a, a standard closing song, an encore song mm-hmm. uh, in the 90s when I would see him. And they'd come back, you know, they'd walk off after the last song, they'd come back, and this is the song that they would play. And it started to get really interesting. I went to a lot of shows that that tour. At one point, there were all these uh, dance, pretty dancing girls, and the stage manager let them come on stage, and they were dancing like go-go girls hmm. uh, while they were playing this song. And then a couple of shows later, they let more people on, and it got to the point where there were 30 or 40 people on the stage. There was one girl who went up to hug Bob while he was playing and singing, <laughs> and he shrugged her off, and the, the security guard you know, carried her off the stage. But it was crazy. Uh, how people reacted to that song. The whole audience was just so happy. I That never happened. I've seen him play it a bunch of times live. That never happened in any of the shows I ever went to. Uh, look around on YouTube because uh, it's, they've captured it. It's wow, really oh, that's really fun. Oh, that's yeah. really funny. Oh, that's good. <laughs> and and, the, and the, the band is so amused by the whole thing, you know, because they, they have this stoic way about them, even back then. But uh, they couldn't help but be cracking up uh, during those performances what do you feel about the the live versions uh yes uh i i find it interesting i think that and bob is uh somebody who tries to do something a little different each time he's always experimenting with it so even if it's not a great rendition it's always an interesting rendition you know if he, he sings a line a different way whether it's this song or you know the rubicon or whatever song he's singing uh suddenly you hear the lyrics differently uh, and it makes it so much more powerful, and you uh, reconnect with the song by hearing it altered. And I think that's something, I, I know you, but Rob, you're down on his association with the Grateful Dead, but I think that's something that he learned from the dead. <laughs> I, I've I, I've come around a little bit on it, I, I will say that, uh, absolutely. When the live versions I've heard, where I've been at a show where he's done it, 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 it to me, I'm like, it's fine. It's fine. It's never been. It's never been like one of my favorite songs of his. And like I said, I actually really do prefer the '74 tour, the Before the Flood version, because now through a lot, the knock on that con- on those run of concerts is he's kind of shouting through all the songs because he's playing these giant arenas. And I think that's a valid criticism for some of the songs, but I actually think it really works for this version. And I like the arrangement where it's, hey, you know, ho, ho, ho. Like he does that, <laughs> you know, I, that's really fun to listen to. And so I really, I really enjoy that, the, the, that 74 tour version of it. And he, of course he, he, you said he closed most of the shows with it. Uh, and he played it a ton through 74. I mean, virtually, I think almost every show on that tour. And then he, didn't play it again through the Rolling Thunder. He, he dropped it for that and then brought it back in 78. And then I was curious. I'm like, did he play it at all? Like how long across the, the born again period did it get retired? And he played it a lot 
through 78 and then not again until 1986. So he's got these sort of long gaps. And then it's basically been in the repertoire one way or the other ever since, because as you said, it's a great way to end the show. And apparently again, some shows you saw got a little, a little crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a really fun song and people, you know, associate Bob Dylan with either like the serious folky blowing in the wind in times they are changing or they, the angry Bob, but this is a really playful Bob. It's like the 115th dream Bob, where he's mm-hmm. just having a, a great time uh, coming up with these lines. <laughs> and and you see it in uh, rough and rowdy ways when uh, he, he sings the multitude song. He has all kinds of interesting uh, references there. He's He's just so playful. And that's what makes him great because he's never the same. But, and, but he's always good. Yeah, I've said George Harrison famous that he's everyone thinks Bob is so serious, but he's such a joker. And you're like, yeah, the guy has a, the, a tremendous sense of humor. He always yeah, has. You can do a whole show on just Bob's humor. Yeah. Uh, his plays on words and his out and out uh, dad jokes and his uh, laughing during this song. And some of his uh, references, you know, are, are hilarious. He has. And, and, we, and we heard it on his radio hour. Uh, when he would start telling the stories, he just had, uh, he has a way with words. That's why he's a Nobel Prize winner. Oh, some of the best panels at the the Bob Dylan event in yeah. Tulsa were about his humor. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah. And, and like I said, I think, I think for some people, this song probably is a little like, okay, I get it. And by the way, you know, it's been covered a million times by lots of different people. And one of the ones I, I you know, when I was doing the research for the, for the show was apparently it was covered by Bob Johnson himself under the pseudonym Colonel Jubilation B. Johnson. <laughs> and it was, and it was covered by, by, by Bob Johnson right after John Stunn, I should say it was done right after Bob had recorded his version. And it ended up appearing on an album called Moldy Goldies, Colonel Jubilation B. Johnson and his mystic Knights band and street singers. And released the same year, 1966. And I went and found that on YouTube. And oh, no. that that version is the version you would expect to sound like for people that just say it's a drug song. If you if you want to just disregard the song as a bunch of guys talking about getting stoned, that's the version you would think of, not the Dylan version. And so I was I listened to it and I went, eh, okay, I got it. Thank you. <laughs> it, was, it was it's a shorter version than Bob's version, but it felt longer. Yeah, I'd love to hear uh an angry version of it with no pretense at humor or drug references, mm-hmm. but just to sing it as it might've been originally written. That would be fascinating to me. That would be. Um, I found this great quote from an interview Bob did with uh, Mikhail Gilmore in 2012, where he says, Gilmore asked Dylan if he worried about misguided interpretations of songs, adding, for example, some people still see rainy day women as coded about getting high. Dylan responds with, it doesn't surprise me that some people would see it that way, but these are people who aren't familiar with the book of acts, which is and, and the, the book of acts is probably what he was reading at the time. And that's <laughs> the one that describes St. Stephen being stoned and, uh, and Saul of Tarsus observing that. And, and that was part of Saul's uh, changing to Paul. So that's a pretty significant uh, <laughs> book. In, in, uh, and it wasn't that much longer, you know, that Bob uh, moved in that direction. I feel, but that quote to me feels like Bob being serious and also being funny because 
most people are not familiar with the book of acts i mean he's acting like that's some sort of reference that everyone knows like oh okay sure bob but as you say it also could be that as well because he was he's always been pulling stuff out of the bible so it makes sense but it's just sort of funny the way it's like oh well those people aren't familiar with the book of acts oh well but but you know the fact that he even took a lot of his references from the bible and sang them in a rock winking rock way whether it's you know the song highway 61 or this song uh that was pretty outrageous for the 1960s you know this mm-hmm. is the same time that uh john lennon got in trouble for saying that the beatles were more popular than jesus right right so, so here he is you know playing around with bible verses that's uh that's a cutting edge kind of guy do you when you were a kid and you were listening to this were you getting any grief from anybody your parents or anybody for listening to this kind no, of music no no i mean uh i remember singing like a rolling stone at the top of my lungs walking throughout the house and you know how does it feel how does it feel but uh, my mother would tease me about that but uh, no there was no interference at all my parents had no idea what i was listening to <laughs> <laughs> okay that's good um tom petty covered it at the 30th anniversary concert and then bob himself uh, pulled it out for the mtv unplugged shows yeah uh which is really fun so again it's it's something that he enjoys singing obviously i mean aside from it just being a hit it's something that he you know likes playing and it's it's a it's a fun kind of you know kind of rave up sort of thing they finally did release the isle of white version on the uh, another the they had that version on the another self-portrait uh, release that came out so you know it's something that he obviously still finds pleasurable to play even though it could i could see maybe you know, he's never as far as i know really butts with the words that much although you could pretty easily change it around because it's i think i think maybe a couple of the verses on mtv unplugged are a little different oh uh, yeah than... no he's, he's they were constantly changing is he really uh, i haven't, I haven't oh, noticed yeah, that. yeah. He, he was making stuff up yeah when i saw him uh, you you had to listen really carefully because you just didn't know what he was going to say. <laughs> the rhymes are relatively on the, I say simplistically, I couldn't do it, but for Bob, uh, they're fairly simplistic. Again, you talk about that. This is, this is the album that's got sad. I'd later the lowlands and visions of Johanna on it. And then he's got, he's got this. So yeah, it's, it's a really fun kind of raucous way to open a record, especially a double album. And then yeah. it's kind of the rest of the rest of the album is kind of just Bob by himself. But here you got this big party atmosphere and it's a, you know, I, I said, it's never been one of my all time favorites of his, but it's certainly something that you appreciate and that it has endured for you know 60 years now. Yeah. It's, it's pretty raucous, uh, especially as an opening song, mm-hmm. because it's not really reflective of the rest of his work. And it's the same thing with the greatest hits album. It's the first song, maybe because it was his most successful song reaching number two, that they put it first. But if you were one of those old time folkies uh, and you put this record on and say, what is this? You know, this isn't the Bob Dylan that I know. Uh, but <laughs> one of the things we've learned over the years is that there sure are a lot of Bob Dylans. He contains multitudes. Of course, uh, I have to ask you our standard exit question, which is, you mentioned earlier about being in the studio. What uh, what recording session of anything Bob's ever done, if you could sit in on, what would it be? Basement tapes. Those guys were having so much fun listening, singing those songs, and Bob was turning the stuff out, and there was like a connection, a visceral connection between those six 
musicians, including Bob. Uh, I, I, I love those songs and I, I love the atmosphere. Uh, that's where I'd want to be. Have you ever been to Big Pink? Uh, no, no. And I, I went to college in Albany, so I wasn't that far from there. But no, I've never even dropped by. That is something I would love to do one day. I would love to. I don't I don't know if I need to go up there and stay, although it probably be worth the drive. But that would be a lot of fun to just do that, because I think it said it's a it's a thing you can do now. That would be really interesting to know you could be in that room like, wow, this is where they all hung out and did this. It's pretty amazing. It's the birthplace of Americana, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, again, Jeff, uh, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the show and reaching out and, and wanting to be on it. And thank you for coming on to discuss this with me. I hope to be on again. And thank you all for listening. Uh, you can find the show over on Twitter and Blue Sky as uh, Pod Dylan. And one other thing I wanted to mention, um, you know, we know we we end every episode with a clip, something related to the song. I mean, I used to end the show with clips of the song, but I've changed it over to something related to the song. And so there was this clip I had of Billy Joel. I love Billy Joel. And there was a clip I had of him at a talk he gave. I don't even remember what it was for. There was like a music college or something. And he mentions Rainy Day Women, number 12 and 35. And I had this on a Kasingle. Everybody remember those Kasingles? You know, over the years, I got rid of all my cassettes and my Kasingles. And I could never find this particular, because it's an intro to a solo piano version uh, he does of Summer Highland Falls, which is one of my favorite songs of his. And I could never find it anywhere. I couldn't find it on YouTube, nothing. And once I realized we were going to do this song, I was like, that's the clip I want. I want to have Billy Joel talking about Rainy Day Women. He only mentions it for like two seconds, but that I got it locked in my head that that's the clip I really wanted. So I kept searching for it, couldn't find it. I even went to eBay to try to try and find because i have a cassette player the single of it i thought i'm even willing to, to to spend a couple of bucks to get the single to then record billy jo- I, i'm i'm a nut I, this is crazy i could have just found another clip of something else related to the song but i was really focused on this and i found it on ebay and somebody was selling it for like twenty dollars and <laughs> And they, uh, they had to uh, make an offer and I made an offer and they turned down my offer. <laughs> I guess it wasn't enough. And I was like, I'm not paying $20 for this single, just for this five second of Billy Joel audio. This is ridiculous. I I mentioned it on Twitter and a bunch of people uh, had the CD version, but apparently there were two versions of the song released. And because uh, it was B-sided with his cover of Bob Dylan's Make You Feel My Love, which is, I think, probably why they found that clip, because he mentions Bob and here he's covering a Bob Dylan song. And and so but nobody had that particular version until follower of the Bob Dylan Twitter feed, uh, Christopher Bruno, wrote to me and said, I think I have it. And he went home that night. He found it. He recorded it for me and he sent me the clip, which is what you're going to hear at the end of the show. So I just have to extend some thanks to Christopher Bruno for making the extra effort to get me that clip. I really appreciate it. Again, I don't know why I was so monomaniacal about this clip of Billy Joel talking about the song, but I just, that was how I wanted to end in the show. And damn it, I was not going to give up on that. So thank you, Christopher Bruno, for doing it. I really appreciate it. So uh, that is going to do it. If you want to support the show and hear the full extended episodes every week, plus our bonus shows, please subscribe to Pod Dylan on Apple Podcasts or on fmpods.com. So that's going to do it. Thanks everybody for listening and we will see you later. Bye. This is, it's called Summer Highland Falls. I don't think I ever say 
Summer Highland Falls in the song at all. But, you know, like, I always thought it was so cool that Bob Dylan wrote a song called Rainy Day Woman Number 13, and nowhere in the song did it have anything to do with Rainy Day or Woman Number 13. <laughs> 